Welcome to another edition of Confessing Your Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is September 5th, 2016, and this is our normal monthly edition, the first fall edition of Faith and Practice with Dr. Joseph Piper. And those who listen to the program uh, all the time know uh, how this works. The listeners write in questions of a theological or practical nature, and the, the president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary will take your questions on the air and answer them. And if he does, then those who write in uh, receive a $10 discount to the Banner of Truth. We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, just real quick uh, to inform uh, the listeners as to what we're doing with the podcast. Um, we, we've launched two new separate segments um, that have been uh, advertised on the, on the website at confessingourhope.com. But, but the first one is one that spotlights or it spotlights our graduates from the seminary. And the first one is coming up in a few weeks with Lowell Ivey. He is uh, now the organizing pastor at Reformation Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So we're going to sit down and talk with him about his ministry, his work, his labors, what we can pray for, and, and that kind of thing. The other new project we're working on is quarterly we're going to uh, interview um, a man who knows something about um, a, a great figure in Presbyterian history. And so Jim Gerritsen is going to be on the program in a few weeks to talk to us about Archibald Alexander. And so he'll give us a bio and we'll interact with his life, his work, and, and his influence in, into, the, um, into Presbyterianism. So those are a couple things that we're doing um, here on the podcast. But as I mentioned, um, the topic of the hour is faith and practice. This is the uh, 29th edition of the program. And so, Dr. Pipe, it's good to have you back on. I know we've had technical difficulties, but uh, why don't you pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll start. Father in heaven, we bless your name. You are most excellent and glorious. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all truth. We thank you that your word is our only rule of faith and practice and infallible word. And we pray today as we seek to apply it to doctrinal and practical questions that your spirit would give us grace, illumine our understanding and that of the hearers, and help us to be clear and useful that you might be glorified. Forgive us of our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, Dr. Piper, you want to just, we'll just take them as they came, as they came in? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, so, if we uh, have any live listeners, you need to explain to them why we're late. Okay. Yeah, no, we don't right now, so we're okay. They gave um, up and went home. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already home. You're already home, but they went home. But anyway, um, well, David writes in from Knoxville, Tennessee, and he has a question about choirs in worship. And he asks, Dr. Piper, what do you think is the most succinct way to argue against church choirs in the New Covenant era? If I asked you to defend your ideas against having a church choir in one minute, what would you say? Okay. Um, David, thank you. Uh, I think this is a very important question in the church. Now, background before I start giving my answer. Uh, there are people who hold to the, the biblical principle that God alone regulates worship uh, that come down on both sides of this issue. So it's not a, uh, we don't say that those who do not agree with uh, either choirs or no choirs are being unfaithful to the regular principle. Um, we recognize there are these areas. We need to continue to uh, study them. So we're all to be careful. I served in church for two and a half years that had a choir that was used very carefully. Uh, it was not just on the top of the list of things uh, to be uh, to be dealt with. So, um, 
when we look at Old Covenant worship, we go to the temple, and we'll see there's two types of things that God revealed, priestly Levitical activities and uh, broader activities. Uh, the broader worship activities revealed in the temple worship are also carried over into the synagogue, and that's principally prayer, reading scripture, uh, preaching of the word, confessing the faith, uh, many would say, uh, singing praise to God. The uh, temple principles are all tied to the priesthood. The choirs in the Old Covenant were uh, priestly activities connected with the festivals and the sacrifices. Uh, thus, when we try to trace out and we use the synagogue then as the filter, uh, choirs were not carried over into the synagogue. When we come into the New Testament, then we find no uh, examples of choirs being used, but in fact, we find that the church now we're the priesthood of believers, and so the congregation is uh, the choir. The other activities um, that are done by one uh, for the many, uh, uh, praying, reading scripture, preaching, are things that we can, I'll use the word vicariously, participate in. Uh, we cannot vicariously participate in singings of a choir. So it, it moves away from corporate worship into um, a type of activity, even not intended to be, it often ends up being uh, entertainment. And so those are some quick reasons, David, why I think that uh, the church, the congregation, is the choir in the New Testament. That's the principle recovered at the Reformation. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, again, the choirs were priestly activities. Uh, the Reformers, uh, I think to a man, had no special choirs, but the congregation was the choir. Calvin did use a children's choir because he didn't have instrumentation uh, to teach uh, new psalm tunes to the congregation. But outside of that, I've not found any, uh, any practice. Well, very good, David, and thank you for, um, for writing in um, and, and listening to the program. Now, William writes in. He's a longtime listener. Um, he writes in from San Antonio, Texas. On the, He's got a question related to uh, the doctrine of rep repentance, and it's a two-part question. Do you want to take these one at a time, or do you want to do them together? Let's try to do them together. I think that he fits. Okay. He, he writes in, he says, I believe it is true that God does not forgive us our sins because we repent, but rather our, um, our repentance is a fruit of faith. Is it not also somehow true, though, that God will not forgive people who do not repent? And then the second part is, Jesus commanded us to forgive our brother seven times, um, 77 times. And Paul in Ephesians commands us to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Are these commands for us to forgive universal and unconditional, or are they only meant to be toward believers or people who repent? Hmm, they are a bit different. So, Okay, uh, William, good to hear from you again. Uh, I think the confession of faith uh, makes it quite clear that repentance has no instrumental role uh, in our justification. Faith is uh, by justification alone. Now, there is a repentance that is a part of saving faith, and that is turning from sin uh, to God in Christ. And so sometimes repentance can be put in the Bible for that act of faith, and it's simply in that case what I would call the, the negative uh, act of faith, turning from in order to turn to. I think it's pretty clear, though, that the, the gospel repentance is indeed a fruit of faith and is... Uh, a mark of saving faith. So, as again, the Confession says, uh, 
We're saved by faith or justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is not alone. So how do we know that it's a true faith? It's a true faith if it uh, obeys God. And thus, right at the heart of true faith is the love for God and the hatred of sin. And so uh, repentance must be a part of our uh, ongoing development in sanctification. Now, none of us ever repent as we ought. We need to actually confess our impartial, uh, improper, sinful repentance. But if we're confessing our sins uh, sincerely in Christ, um, we are um, assured of pardon. Now, the pardon that comes from confession after justification is not a, a new pardon. It's not an uh, establishing a relationship, uh, a, um, a legal relationship with God, but it's to maintain fellowship and communion with God. So a converted person who is not uh, living well uh, for some period of time by, according to the Word of God, can be out of fellowship with God, but they're not going to lose their salvation if they really had it. So repentance is very important. Uh, but it doesn't. It's not what saves us. It's the mark of of saving uh, faith, and it must be maintained for a proper fellowship with God. The second question is a bit more different. I'm sorry, I, I confused that at first. It's a very important issue. Whom do we forgive? Well, we forgive in the same way that God forgives. God forgives those who ask for pardon. And so we are to forgive those believers and non-believers who ask us for forgiveness. And thus, that particular act they did against us is to be forgiven, which means it's not to be brought back up uh, or to hinder the ongoing relationship. I think we get, get a lot of confusion today when we'll hear people saying to somebody that killed a child, a drunken driver, or a murderer, even, or whatever, I forgive you. Well, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. Uh, we, God does not forgive where there's no uh, confession, and nor do we. Now, what a lot of people mean, though, is that, and what I think the Bible would teach, is we're not to have a vindictive attitude. Mm-hmm. We're not to hold grudges. And so, uh, that we live with those uh, who have sinned against us, um, not being vindictive or vengeful, but we will not have a restored relationship with them because uh, that's what the confession is necessary for. Okay. Yeah, they are a little bit different, but uh, Dr. Piper, just uh, even fleshing this second one out a little bit further, I think it's 70 times 7, 7 times It is 70. 7 times, but yeah, anyway. It's, yes, but, uh, an innumerable time is what the Savior right, is getting but, at. Of course, and, and, and so so you're saying it's not a it's just not forgiveness is not universal in the sense that we just forgive willy nilly unless someone actually requests forgiveness. Right. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's there's much confusion on this subject. I've had this question put to me a few times even recently. So, um, so I'm glad for the question, William, and thank you for listening. As always, very faithful listener uh, to the program. Davi writes in. See, I got him. I got his name right this time. Davi yeah. writes in from from Brazil. Well, I've been corrected enough times. I should get it right. 
by now. But he writes in from Brazil, and he has a question relating to ecclesiastical leadership. And and I'm going to synthesize the question down a little bit from what he originally wrote. But he essentially is asking, um, Doctor Pipe, is if a man doesn't is not married or have children, which he would have to be married first to have children or to be disqualified on the surface. But if he doesn't, if he's not married or have children, um, why is that not a disqualification for the office of elder as it relates to the other qualifications? Right. Well, um, because it's a qualification uh, of relationship and a qualification to, uh, for a man to manifest his ability to uh, rule well. Uh, but to make it a prescriptive qualification mm-hmm. would be to say then that uh, single men uh, could not serve in the ministry, and yet Christ teaches us that some men have the gift of celibacy. They might devote themselves to the kingdom. So comparing Scripture with Scripture, uh, marriage is not the qualification. If a man is married then he is to manage his household well. And the same with children. God doesn't give children to all uh, people. I had dinner yesterday with a ruling elder and his wife, a very godly, faithful ruling elder, and they've never forgiven children by God. Uh, Does that mean he shouldn't be a ruling elder? No, because that's a a sovereign uh, prerogative on God's part. So a man who's not married or is married and doesn't have children must manifest his... uh, qualifications in terms of uh, administration and rule in other ways, in terms of how he manages his own household, how he manages his own uh, finances, how he keeps his house, um, kind of leadership that he would show, because uh, leadership uh, uh, is, we look in in Romans 12, we see it's a gift that belongs to uh, to elders. So there are other ways for a man to test his leadership ability, his actions in the church. Perhaps as a young man, he led the youth group. He, he took part in planning. Uh, he followed he followed through on responsibilities that were given to him. He could delegate successfully, and so we just test a man in, in those ways. But the Apostle Paul probably was not married. Doesn't appear that Barnabas was married or Timothy. We don't know, um, but and we don't argue completely from the silence of Scripture. But we know that Christ said that some uh, are given gifts of celibacy for the sake of the, of, uh, of their gospel work. Mm-hmm. So I think no, it's not an ecclesiastical qualification. Yeah, you stole my thunder. I was going to mention the Apostle Paul, but just a real quick follow up though. Um, Dr. Piper, um, so in a sense, you could say that, that this this particular qualification that Paul establishes in 1 Timothy um, 3 is one that is wholly governed by the sovereignty of God, whereas the, the qualifications for prudence, temperance, and those other aspects, you know, not given to money, um, not governed by money, um, not, given to, not addicted to alcohol or wine, as it's put um, there, those are things that are within the bounds of our Christian character and responsibility. That's right. They're all part of normal sanctification, and the elders to have them in an exemplary degree. Okay. So to follow that up even further, what what if a man wanted to stay in the office of elder and was not physically prevented from having children but refused to have children? That would be very different. If uh, It's a commandment to have children, 
Uh, Malachi 2 makes it clear that in the marriage covenant we seek a godly seed that's spelled out in the confession of faith. So if a couple chooses for self-centered reasons not to have children, then I think that would disqualify them. Mm, very good. Well, Davi, again, thank you for writing in, and um, thank you for listening faithfully to the program, and appreciate your encouraging uh, letters and comments. Um, our next listener writes in, um, it's Tom from New Hampshire, and he has a question related to confessional uh, subscription. Um, and he asked, uh, Dr. Piper, what are the different views on confessional subscription? Which one do you hold to? In let's, your opinion, what's... Okay, go ahead. Let's do this one at yeah. a time. Yeah, okay. Um, we've touched on this a bit before. There are two primary views of, of uh, con- system subscription or... Strict subscription or full subscription, and, and what we call what's been called good faith subscription. They, they center around the, the words of the ordination vow for elders, deacons, and ministers that a man uh, takes a vow that he holds to the system of truth that's taught in the Westminster Confession. That's historically been understood that there's a system of truth in the confession and I hold to all of it. In the history mm-hmm. of subscription, when we see the Adopting Act in the, the colonies, the first uh, subscription act in in uh, the colonies and, and in our country, uh, that's how uh, it's been understood. The uh, people that hold to system subscription says that they hold to the system generally, but they're not bound to hold to all of the system. And that's why it's been called a good faith subscription, um, which I think a bit misnomer itself. Um, and so basically, do I believe that the doctrines taught in the Westminster Standards, all of them are biblical doctrines? Or do I believe that I have the right to say, well, I think that uh, this truth, or this, this thing and that thing, I don't find them in Scripture, and so I, I don't subscribe to them. I hope that's clear. I believe that we must subscribe in full subscription to uh, the confession as a whole. And the other is opening uh, Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're experiencing that right now. We did it at the last General Assembly. I don't want to jump ahead of myself here. Uh, let me go ahead and answer first about the next one. In your opinion, what scruples or exceptions do you think would or wouldn't be valid for someone coming into the office of ruling or teaching elder? Um, we make a, a difference between scruples and exceptions. Uh, so full subscription would say, I have no exceptions to the doctrines. And that means every doctrine that's taught in the confession of faith, I hold to. But none of us would believe that every exegetical background or expression within that doctrine would, uh, the the expression itself is not exegetically defensible. And so we scruple that. It's not the doctrine. It's something within the doctrine. I'll give some examples. We'll take the most famous one, and that is psalm singing. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I hold to the regular principle of worship. I believe that in that we must only sing um, what the Bible reveals. If the standards mean 
when they say that we are to sing psalms, that we're to sing psalms exclusively, then I would scruple that because I believe the Bible requires me, under the regular principle, to sing uh, orthodox hymns as well as psalms. Now, I think we should sing probably the majority of psalms in our worship. So I'm an inclusive psalmist, not an exclusive psalmist. Or Dr. Knight, who is also, who's holes and is written on full subscription, uh, has a, um, a scruple uh, with respect to the Lord's Prayer. He follows the, the text. Uh, the critical text does not have the doxology at the end of Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. And so Dr. Knight, in the Catechism's exposition of the Lord's Prayer, would scruple that answer. Now he thinks that he thinks that the doxology is in Scripture, but he doesn't think it is in the Lord's Prayer. Now one other thing that comes to play here is that when a new denomination adopts the standards, uh, they might adopt the standards that allow for some other uh, scruples that would be a bit more serious, but they still would rise the level of exception. And this would be Dr. Knight's other scruple. So that the, um, the standards teach that the end times that Christ will come, that there'll be a resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and uh, the unrighteous. Uh, Dr. Knight is one of those rare Reformed people who is historic pre-mill and believes in a double resurrection. So he would scruple the confession, and when the OPC was formed, when the PCA were formed, there were people that were historic pre-mill, and it was understood that they would be allowed that more serious um, scruple. So that's the difference between scruple and an exception. So I have no exceptions to the Westminster Standards, but I um, scruple in particular the uh, remarks there with respect to psalm singing. Now, the one that's really up for debate right now in the PCA, and this is a result of what is called good faith subscription. What would you think of someone who wants to take an exception to what the Westminster Standards set forth relative to the Fourth Commandment and Sabbath observance? And this is being done increasingly. Uh, most often, it is the recreation clause. Now, and these people, if they have done some study, will say, I think that Isaiah 58, 13, and 14 is not referring to recreation. It talks about not doing your own pleasure on, uh, on the Lord's Day. Um, I think this is an exception. The, the, the Sabbath, the whole Sabbath commandment is the whole day that belongs to the Lord and is to be devoted to acts of public and private worship and deeds of necessity and mercy. So it's not to be in the afternoon a play day. It's not a day to watch uh, television. It's not a day to uh, play organized sports. I mean, some churches will be having their kids out playing volleyball. Uh, somebody might go out and play a round of golf. No, the day itself is to be spent uh, in um, uh, worship, private worship, uh, meditation, prayer, public worship. And some people say, well, I think that it's 
proper to take a nap. And standards don't allow that. But the standards don't forbid taking a nap. A nap is easily mm-hmm. due to necessity and mercy. It's just you don't sleep away the whole afternoon, at least not normally. It could be sometimes a person is so exhausted that they take a nap and uh, they fall into a very deep sleep. They're not breaking the Sabbath. They're doing that which is, is necessary uh, for them. But now with this good faith subscription, it's gotten to the point that at the last term assembly, the, uh, I feel you can correct me if I'm wrong here, the, I think the review of press train minutes minority said that a man who thought the Sabbath was not necessary to be on the first day of the week and to be observed in the in the way that the standards teach that was not um, <laughs> a serious You're exception right. to the standards, and the majority that, said said that, that the minority brought a report and assembly upheld the majority. So we're headed in a very dangerous direction now. And then something that perhaps some people have seen, and if you've not seen it, look it up on the Aquila report. Um, if you write me, I can also send you what I received as a YouTube link from uh, a minister. That in one of our presbyteries now, a minister is teaching something that I think is being taught in um, uh, one of our seminaries, and that is that same-sex attraction is not a sin if a person is celibate and mm. uh, does not prohibit a man from being a gospel minister. This minister that taught that had charges brought against him by another minister, I think from a different presbytery. His presbytery had a trial and exonerated him. So we have a whole presbytery now in the Presbyterian Church in America that has declared that it's uh, not a sin to have uh, same-sex attraction as long as one does not act on it. So Hmm. this whole approach to Scripture and subscription, they go hand in hand. That's right. is uh, it's the death knell for for our for the Presbyterian Church in America if we do not uh, take some pretty radical acts pretty quickly. Yep. Well, very good answer and great question. And let me just um, recommend also to you, Tom, and the listeners. Uh, Dr. Morton Smith had has written a book um, it, quite a while ago, but the, the title of it is "The Subscription Debate: Studies in Presbyterian Polity." You can get that at the seminary, I believe. Right. Greenville Seminary. So if you write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu, I will get that information to you as to who to contact and, and that kind of thing. Um, but it's a very helpful little booklet uh, covering in great detail um, the very question that was just asked. In addition to that, Tom, we do appreciate your generosity for um, offering your discount code uh, to one of the students. So I'll just let Dr. Pipa handle that and he'll just let me know uh, who that student should be and I'll to get that information to the right into the powers to be as it were um so but again tom thank you for your question very good question and for your generosity as well i'm sure one of the students at least will uh, be very thankful uh, for your kindness uh, terry writes in from philadelphia he has a question regarding presbyterian licensure and ordination committee and he says i recently began serving as a ruling elder on our presbyteries licensure and ordination committee and several podcasts ago i remember dr piper talking about how the pca used to handle licensure examinations differently than they do now i like what dr piper had to, uh, had said and was wondering if he could share more i would love to hear how his presbyteries committee handles this and if there are any written guidelines or resources that, that he could share with the candidates etc um so 
Well, that, that, that's, that's convenient. You were on the uh, Calvary Presbyterian uh, Examination Committee, Theological Examination Committee, for a number of years, so you, you can speak to this, I think, very well, Right, of and we were able to get that changed. Historically, licensure was a the middle act toward ordination. There's candidacy when a man is recommended by his session uh, as a viable candidate for the gospel ministry. He's examined by the presbytery then in terms of his piety, his uh, character, and his call to the ministry. And he then is put on the role of candidates, and the presbytery is supposed to, along with the home session, oversee the man's um, education and development toward the ministry. Stage two, it was licensure. And the purpose of licensure was that a man could begin to exercise, particularly his preaching gifts, uh, publicly in the presbytery. This usually would take place after uh, a couple of years of seminary. And the purpose of the, the goal of licensure is for a man to be able to preach and to be approved for that, he needed to be orthodox and he needed to have a, a good grasp of Scripture and a, uh, a faithful grasp of the book of church order. And manifest he can preach a sermon that would be edifying. Then the third stage would be uh, ordination, where a man now has a call and he is examined in all of his parts to be sure that he is theologically uh, sound in uh, doctrine and in the sacraments in particular. Uh, the Orthodox Christian Church also, uh, we ha- and church history, and um, has to write an exegetical paper and um, theological paper. Now, so what's happened is that a lot of our presbyteries, both in the PC and the OPC, have made the licensure exam much more like an ordination exam. Mm-hmm. And so they, in the PCA, he had a full theology exam. If he passed the theology exam, then he wouldn't take that again for ordination. Whereas historically, in licensure, he was examined into his knowledge of and commitment to the Westminster Standards. And so it was a different kind of examination, examination with respect to his orthodoxy. And so at licensure, he's not expected to be able to uh, critique federal vision or pedo communion or um, uh, contrast uh, immoralism with uh, true covenant theology, redemption, or critique Westernism or whatever. Uh, th- that's part of the ordination exam where man has to demonstrate his theological ability. So what we did in Calvary Presbytery is we went back to the older model, and now uh, we examine a man into his knowledge of the standards. And so it's a very thorough examination in uh, the Confession and Catechisms. And we examine him in his grasp of the English Bible to be sure that he knows the English Bible uh, in content but also can handle the Bible in terms of um, pastoral situations and evangelism and things like that. And he would preach a, uh, a sermon. First he turns in a sermon manuscript, and then he preaches a sermon before Presbytery, usually only allowed about 20 minutes, mm-hmm. but to see that he can at least edify God's people and be balanced and preach Christ, as well as have application. And then a general knowledge of the Book of Church order, since he'd be interacting uh, with churches and such. 
So now, uh, in Calvary Presbytery, the licensure exam does not take the place of the ordination exam in areas of theology and, and sacraments and things like that. I think that's a, and I know that OP Presbyterians, some of them now are moving in the same direction. They actually required Greek and Hebrew for the licensure exam, which meant that uh, a man had to be pretty advanced in his seminary training to have an ordination. I mean, to have a, a theology exam and a Greek and Hebrew exam as part of licensure. So there's been a movement there as well to move uh, to, to go back to a, a more historic approach. Is a man orthodox? Can he handle scripture? Does he have a general knowledge of the book of church order? Can he preach? So that's what I encourage, and that's what I would encourage you, Terry, to do. Uh, I'm glad to see Roman Elder actively involved in Presbyterian on this committee. Uh, may God bless you as you seek to work out these things. In terms of written guidelines, um, I'm no longer on the committee. Uh, you could um, you could write Calvary Presbytery, or you could write the chairman of the committee, who's Pastor Carl Robbins. Uh, if you write Bill, he'll give you Carl's email address. Send Bill an email. Sure. Um, and see if he can send you the uh, questions. Uh, or whatever that they're using now on, on the committee. Yeah, it's a very good question. Just a follow-up real quick, Dr. Piper, and I know this has been debated, um, and I don't know where I land on this issue. I, I took the track that you laid out, candidacy, licensure, ordination. I, I can't imagine trying to do licensure and ordination all at the same time, but there's been some debate that the BCO, the PCA anyway, BCO allows for licensure and ordination at the same time. What, what is your opinion on that? I think it's wrong. Um, it's, again, licensure is supposed to be for a man to test his gifts, to do it at the same time, or even just three months before um, ordination. At least there's some period in there, but most often presbyterians are not testing men's gifts in that period of time. It's a hoop that they have to go through, and so there's some that try to do it at the same meeting or within just a, a few months, and I think that's just not a proper use of licensure. Yep. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on this, uh, but just from a pragmatic and practical uh, place, um, I, I can't imagine trying to do all of it at once. Uh, it was hard enough the way I did it to begin with and being in seminary. So uh, my encouragement uh, to students would be to do the process just the way Dr. Pipe established it. Um, you, you'll benefit from it, I think, greater in a greater way anyhow. Um, and if it's done correctly, it's an arduous process. So... Um, Anyway, but Tom, thank or Terry, thank you for the question and um, and appreciate your listening uh, to the program. Um, Israel writes in from uh, Rio de Janeiro, and he has a, a, a question about interpretation. He wants to know what is the reformed interpretation of Romans eleven twenty six, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What all Israel? What what is the all Israel uh, referring to? Now this. <laughs> well. I know your uh, position, Doctor Piper. Of it, course, <laughs> Israel is is Dobby's father. So, <laughs> um, so he's Dobby a pastor. He's a pastor. Okay. There, there is no reformed uh, interpretation of that phrase. There are basically three approaches. They're all been put forth and are accepted by, by reformed expositors. The one is that all Israel simply means all the elect of Israel throughout the history of the church. Um, will be saved. Now, that's a bit redundant. We know that all elect uh, will be saved. And uh, the second takes Israel as simply a, a name for the church. And um, 
The third is that there'll be a time in the history of redemption when the great majority of ethnic Israel shall come to embrace uh, Christ. I do hold to that last one, and for a couple of reasons. You contrast world and Israel in Romans 11 in the context. Israel is always in that context referring to ethnic Israel, and the world is the world of uh, the Gentiles. Moreover, in the broader context, the Apostle starts in chapter 9 wrestling with, um, has God been unfaithful that so few of the Old Covenant people have embraced the Messiah? And so Paul begins by talking about the benefits that belong to the Old Testament church, and then he goes on to talk about the sovereignty of God, of election, and reprobation. But in chapter 11 now, he moves directly to answering this question, and he says that we're going to see a time yet when the great majority of ethnic Israel will come to Christ. So any of those positions are acceptable. Bill was going to tell you that I think that the third one is um, the most uh, consistent exegesis. Uh, you can consult for a study of it, John Murray, in his commentary in Romans 11, uh, in um, Cornel Benham's book on eschatology that Banner Truth publishes. He, uh, he argues for the last position. And in Greville Seminary, um, you can get to the uh, lectures of the conference that we did on eschatology. We had an uh, interchange between uh, Dr. Shaw, who uh, says that it's not ethnic Israel, all of ethnic Israel, and uh, Dr. Benema uh, doing his position, so you can get, kind of get both sides of the issue there as well. Right. Well, I know your position, Dr. Pub, because I sat under you for a number of years, <laughs> and I know where, and, and I think I had your eschatology, we were in, you taught eschatology at that time. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I, yeah. And now how does that your position relate to what is commonly referred to in postmillennialism as the golden age? Well, you're going a whole different direction now, you know, because it's interesting, Benjamin is not a postmillennialist. Right, so, I'm millennial. It doesn't completely uh, have to be a um, post-millennial question. Post-millennialism, as I think most Reformed people today would hold to it, is really amillennialism because uh, we believe that uh, the thousand years in Revelation 20 is the church age. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is that we uh, think that there's going to be a time of growing gospel prosperity. And sometime probably toward the end of that, well, that, that could still be 100 years or something afterwards or more, um, we will see um, this great revival take place, and then we're going to see that um, uh, a great majority of, of ethnic Israel will be saved. Uh, on my... Uh, You're going uh, you, you to do it again. You're going to steal my thunder again. <laughs> in my website, I've posted an article by... Uh, uh, Dr. Kurto, that he gave in my eschatology class, uh, uh, a presentation defense of this view. Yeah, it's actually so, an audio. It's the audio lecture of that class. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it was fantastic. And if you have not heard, um, if you have not heard this lecture, uh, it is it is a fantastic. It convinced me. I was on the fence. Eschatology. So that's my uh, my website's josephpiper. Um, dot com. Dot com. And yep. you can see that. Plus, I'm going to be, Lord willing, starting to put... We've got some articles on there already on the PCA's decision 
uh, about studying women and women's ordination, and I'll be posting some things Lord willing, in the next few weeks as well. Fantastic. Just just to remind everybody that that website is josephpiper.com. If you just search for um, postmillennialism or, or Tony Curdo, Dr. Curdo, any of those, um, the audio for that will come up, and you can listen to the entire lecture. It was um, I don't remember how remember how long it was, but I do know that it convinced me at that at that lecture convinced me to be postmillennial. So um, um, and that was the day I think Dr. Piper that you had all three views represent or, or no you did it in three straight weeks so we did three three, three different two-hour lectures and that's i try right. to uh, and, and dr mcgraw's taking that course doing the same thing i try to get uh, people that are really good for each position so dr knight has done the historic pre-mill uh dr phillips has done on mill and then dr curto has done post mill yep very good all right our next question um comes in um and it's a follow-up question to, um, it was really a sidebar conversation, Dr. Piper, that you and I had had, uh, I don't remember which one, what episode it was, but it's relating to the discussion where you said that David Murray, David Murray caricatures Jay Adams on counseling, or was it just on depression? The listener's not sure, uh, can't remember exactly. Uh, could you kindly expand, how would you say he caricatures uh, that is that David Murray was a strict adherent of Jay Adams' philosophy of counseling, and so I would think that David Murray knew the philosophy he was discarding. Do you remember that conversation? I, I do remember, and I, I, okay. I hope I said it in this context, that what he said at our conference yes. was a caricature of Dr. or of Nuthetic Count. I didn't mention Adams by name. Um, at our conference, when he took it upon himself to um, critique uh, biblical and aesthetic counseling, he said that um, we ignore uh, the physical and medical uh, problems that can be involved with depression, and he used his wife as an example who had severe postpartum depression. And what I'm saying as a caricature is that as I learned biblical counseling, and from Adams in particular, is that uh, step number one in many issues is a physical examination uh, and to be sure that um, a person is not uh, got some uh, hormonal problem, which often happens with postpartum depression, uh, sleep deprivation. That was Adam's uh, PhD study. I believe, or at least he, he did a lot of work on, on sleep deprivation, which can have all the same um, effects of schizophrenia and other things like that. So the caricature was that it's ignored, and that's all I was referring to, not overall to Mr. Murray's critique, but uh, to the fact that um, that part is a caricature to say that nuthetic counseling. In fact, Adam says, you know, right out of the gate, get a doctor you can work with, and good blessing mm-hmm. Greenville have a couple of physicians that also committed to Synthetic counseling, and so pastors are able to send uh, uh, patients to uh, a physician who's not so big on the throw drugs at the issue. Yep. Yeah, and let me just echo by saying that when I took my counseling class at Greenville Seminary, Dr. Scipione, who is a proponent of nuthetic counseling, um, he, he made the same argument. So it's not that, that it's dismissed. It's it's involved. In fact, he brought in and helped me, Dr. Piper, the student, the doctor, what's his Howell. name? Thank you. He he brought him in to give a lecture for two hours on this particular this issue, um, so it it was it was in the mainstream of the discussion. So um, 
Yeah. Uh, I, and so I that's, that. that's the only critique I had at that time. Uh, and, and when I used the word caricature, it was only that particular issue. Yep. Well, I appreciate the follow-up question, and thank you again for listening to the program. Our next listener, um, I guess, wants to be anonymous, but writes in from the state of Indiana, and um, it's a four-part question related to, relating to Overture 43 of the most recent PCA General he Assembly. He doesn't say he wants to, to be anonymous. He, get, he signs it with his name. He never asked to be anonymous. Oh, I'm sorry. It's at the bottom. I saw that. Thank you. Steve writes in from Indiana. Thank you for the correction. Um, do you want to take these one at a time? Yeah. I, I thought so. Yeah, I'm going to bury myself slowly. That's okay. All right. So the, the, Steve writes in, and he, he has a question related to Overture 43, and, and I'm assuming Dr. Pipe is going to give the background. Why don't you give the background to Overture 43, Bill? I mean, I mean what, it, what it did. If you have it, yeah, it would be great. Yeah, well, I don't have the language in front of me. It's it's on the PCA General Assembly website because it's about three or four pages of, of information. But Overture 43 basically – um, was approved and voted on, voted on and approved uh, by the assembly to uh, repent of apparent corporate sins of the assembly of the of the PCA um, in the area of race. That's a very quick summary of what that was. It's there's more to okay, it than that. Yeah, That's the just a, a bit more, I think, to to be fair, that it um, um, the overture and there was a bunch of them trying to tone down the one that came in a year before. That's um, is that uh, the assumption was that the PCA was formed on a racist basis and that some of the early uh, fathers in the PCA uh, were segregationist. Uh, there were churches in the South, uh, probably all over America, uh, where um, they would not have, and these weren't just Presbyterian churches, they would not have, have uh let um, African-Americans uh, come to the church, although most of them, I, I pastored in that era, and I was uh, uh, never in any way thought of to be a racist. In fact, I was in trouble with people because of, of very open views. Uh, but um, most often what was happening is that there was a movement to uh, send radicals into a church service just to see if they could either stir up problems or uh, integrate the church. And so they would be asked, if you're here to worship, uh, you're welcome to come. If you're not here to worship, then you're not welcome to come. Uh, so a lot of different kind of things went on. But there was a lot of uh, racism, in, uh, particularly in southern churches. I can't speak for the other parts of the country. I, I didn't live there at the time, although... In the mid-70s, we moved to uh, Philadelphia. I found that um, race relations in Philadelphia were much more tense and segregated than they were in Mississippi, mm. where I had pastored. Um, and so what the Overture wanted to do was to call us to repent and confess the sins of the PCUS um, early on, although the PCUS had long ago repented of its sins, and then um, of any churches that um, had practiced segregation, any ministers that had taught uh, on racial separation, um, and uh, to confess those things. And uh, part of this was to encourage the African-American brothers 
in the PCA um, to to get rid of of what some felt was a a, a tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, which are also said ongoing um, right. racial ongoing. segregation, and that that anticipates one of the uh, of the further uh, questions uh, in here. So that was the overture passed by about eighty five percent. Yep, um, very large uh, large margin. So so does do Ephesians to... two, when Paul speaks of the middle wall of partition uh, being broke broken down. Does that speak to racial reconciliation? Well, um, yes and no. Racial reconciliation is a concept that um, I don't even know how to begin to approach racial reconciliation. Reconciliation means that we're at odds and we come together. Um, So that Paul in Ephesians 2 is addressing the Jew-Gentile barrier that was established by God, and then that middle wall of petition was broken down. And both then are reconciled in Christ, in the body of the church in Christ through through the cross. Uh, So I think we can truly apply that but in the body of Christ, as Paul would say in Galatians, there's no male or female, no uh, slave or free, um, no Jew or Gentile. The body of Christ ought not to be divided uh, on racial barriers. So it's the gospel, and when the gospel comes, the gospel breaks down uh, barriers. Uh, prejudiced um, racism are sins. Mm-hmm. And uh, James will pick up on that same problem and address it um, in his book in terms of social prejudice and how the church uh, sins uh, in that way. So, yes, we should see the body of Christ is open to all people. Uh, whoever has a credible profession of faith uh, should be admitted into the fellowship of the church. If that's what is meant by racial reconciliation, then it's it's uh, it's what happens with the gospel and should happen. And if people, because of their sin, have uh, not allowed that to happen, then they should repent and uh, they should be disciplined. If in the mm-hmm. PCA there was a church that would not allow um, a Hispanic or a black or an Asian or whatever or a white to uh, a Caucasian, I guess to be politically correct, um, to join the church, who uh, made a profession of faith, then those people should be disciplined. That's contrary to uh, to the gospel of God. But the next question then is, is racial reconciliation in ministry of the church? And I say no. Just as I say a church's responsibility is not to close down abortion clinics. Um, People in the church can be involved in picketing abortion clinics, doing uh, sidewalk counseling and things like that. People in the church, as Christians, uh, can actively be involved in improving racial reconciliation. That happened in Charleston after Mm -hmm. that mass murder. Uh, PCA pastor John Payne was at the service and uh, uh, spoke there, uh, gave a, a wonderful address. 
And these Christians came together from different denominations and different races uh, to make sure that we didn't have in Charleston what we had in places like Ferguson. Um, and it worked. And so Christians should be involved in uh, promoting um, uh, true reconciliation on the basis of gospel uh, amongst all people. But I don't think that is a ministry of the church. I think it is, as I said, it's an outworking of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And what we see is is that the gospel does do that. I mean, I uh, pastored in a county in Mississippi that many said was probably the second most uh, racially um, prejudicial counties in the state of Mississippi. I mean, in this county, uh, when forced segregation, integration came in, the public school got blown up. Mm. Um, the whites said that the African-Americans blew it up. The African-Americans said the whites blew it up, and more than likely it was the second thing that happened. But that's that was the kind of climate that I moved into when I went there in uh, 1969. And uh, I had people leave the church, not because I tried to integrate the church. That would not have been good for the body of Christ at that point. Now, that'll get me in a lot of trouble. But let me explain. Part of that was that where I lived, there really wasn't a African-American middle class. And right. there's no way that I could, in, in one sermon, have ministered to two segments of society. What did happen is that some African-Americans came to the session and asked us to start a black preaching, a preaching station for the African-Americans at a Baptist church, which the session gladly did. And I could preach the same sermon, more or less, but I would just bring it down in terms of vocabulary, of listening styles, and things like that. And that was a a, a great major step. Um, But I I dealt in the pulpit with uh, the need to um, evangelize, to do Bible studies, and, you know, if out of that, as people grew, I think folks realized, you know, this, this is what would happen, which would have been fine. Um, but I had people leave the church over that. But mm. a few years ago, one of them made a point of telling me that an African-American pastor preached the ordination sermon for her pastor. And the church that she was in was kind of, a, not at this point, obviously, but in the 70s was a white flight church. And she then told me, and if I lived in Jackson, I would go to his church. <laughs> you see, that's what the gospel did. That's right. And that's what the gospel does. And that we preach the gospel, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change homosexuals, it's going to change adulterers and uh, thieves, it's Paul, all that whole list that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you, but now you have been washed, sanctified, and justified. So racial barriers will be broken down as we preach the whole counsel of God in Christ. And always from day one, I, I was free to preach that any kind of racial hatred or prejudice was a sin. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, the churches there, the, the African Americans that want that type of ministry are very free to come. And see, that's part of the problem is that, you know, now I don't know a church in the PCA that uh, African Americans would not be welcome. Uh, we have churches here in in Greenville that have mixed marriage couples. We have other couples in in my congregation. A number of them, at least three families, have adopted African American children. We have a professor mm-hmm. at the seminary who adopted three uh, African children uh, when their parents died of AIDS, not because of of sin, but through blood transfusion. Uh, they students. Asked, they asked him and his wife to take their sons. Um, we've had students do the same. And we, yeah. So um, that's what the gospel does. Now, should churches or denominations set as a goal reaching out to races other than their own, when a church or denomination is largely of one race? Um, again, it depends on what one means by that. The question goes on to say... Um, Down is there any, dan- down is there any danger in doing that? Well, we'll get back to that. But should each congregation as much as possible be a snapshot for the community in which the church resides? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's the issue, the whole parish approach to church life. Or I think it's great uh, if a church moves into an uh, urban-blighted inner-city area and tries to there establish a parish ministry. Not um, so. Yeah, the denomination might be predominantly white, but we do have that responsibility to take the gospel to uh, all people of all races. And so, no, a white denomination should not want to remain white. It should want to reflect um, the character of the body of Christ. Now, um, I don't know what the question means by set a goal of reaching out to races other than their own. Um, I just the goal is that there should be no racial barriers, artificial barriers thrown up to the church. Maybe he means something like formal, structured, ministerial approaches to reaching out to other races that are not necessarily the predominant one in that church. Yeah, well, let, we'll take seminary again, for example. Um, we have talked about in the past have, have played with ideas of how can we make our school more accessible to African Americans. We have a lot of Hispanic students, but how can we make it accessible? Uh, and we have looked into designated uh, scholarships uh, to help uh, an African American man come and study, because we want to see, not for racial reconciliation, but because we love the Reformed faith, we want it to be carried into all of our communities. And if that's yep. our passion, our goal, then there should be no racial barriers. And if if a church or denomination can move into an area, what we, we don't want to do is what the federal government did and start busing people of one race into another school that was in an area um, in order to create an artificial. But for the church to move into those areas and for... Uh, Caucasians to move into uh, black neighborhoods and uh, 
seek to establish a church there to reach that neighborhood with the gospel, you've got to realize as well that uh, some large majority of the African American churches have very little of the gospel. And that's probably getting me in trouble as well. But I've ministered there a good bit, so uh, I, I'm not speaking out of ignorance. And so it's my passion and desire to see the uh, Reformed gospel come um, to uh, these neighborhoods and to see these people come into uh, Reformed uh, churches. So um, is there a danger? Again, if racial reconciliation is the goal, then yes, there's a big danger. If carrying the gospel to all people is the goal, then I don't see how we can say that there is a danger. The same, the question goes on to ask about class, religion, education level. Uh, no, there is a church growth principle that uh, says that we should focus on a particular demographic where that church is, um, and I think that's reprehensible. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to. Um, um, and we got church growth churches now that want to be upper end mm-hmm. people um, out of the culture. Uh, no. Uh, so, uh, but we start with parish churches where the church is a snapshot of the community and God is glorified. Now, another problem we have here is to. To do this, do we violate the regular principle of worship? No. But uh, can we sing different music styles as long as the music itself is appropriate for worship? Uh, yes. Um, when I'm in, in Brazil, they've got they have a psalter and set to just fantastic music. Now, some of them are psalms, some are traditional songs, but some are a bit more Brazilian uh, in their uh, in their makeup, uh, and so again, our opposition to quote contemporary music is not new hymns or hymns that would have a bit of a different musical genre, um, but as long as the genre is consistent with public worship, um, well, then I think yes, and God is glorified. Mm-hmm. So yep. then, is there a biblical defense for the confession of generational sins? No, I think not. I think that um, when we find these systems in the Bible, it's out of a current context where these things are going on or the church is suffering under the punishment for those things. So in Daniel's prayer and Nehemiah's prayer and whatever, uh, we we see that. Um, So... um, then the question gets down to, um, I don't dispute experiences of some in the PCA. However, I might add that it's a little hard to explain to non-believers why 15% voted against Overture 43. I'm thankful that no one I know knows about this. Well, that 15%, at least some portion of them, have very graciously and boldly written Mm-hmm. And the problems were biblical, exegetical problems. Not There was no defense of uh, racism uh, in uh, the men that voted that way who have expressed themselves. Well, one missionary on, on the floor uh, made a very, um, uh, I thought, very good speech. 
And he said, you leave this as it is, I, I can't vote for it. And, he, and he, he spelled it out why. And then a couple of good articles have been written. Um, and so the, um, the people that I know of who were in the 15% had no truck for racism or to defend anybody that um, racist or a church that was racist. Calvary Presbyterian had an overture where we wanted to protect the Spirit Act, the church, and to call people to repent. Currently, who uh, practiced any kind of racism or segregation, uh, and our overture didn't uh, make it to the floor of the assembly. So, um, this, these were exegetical issues over the content. For example, the overture said that we had this ongoing racial problem in our churches. When I asked the question of individuals, I didn't get involved in debating this on the floor of the assembly, but uh, can, you, uh, can you tell me an example? Well, it was we're not doing enough. And when we're getting around to is racial reconciliation to be a, a goal of a denomination. So this has probably created all kinds of furor, and I'm thinking off the top of my head, I'd be glad to be challenged, um, but uh, trying to answer the, the questions as faithfully as I know how, and we're out of time. Yes, we are. Steve, I appreciate the question, and, and I just want to point out that he did um, also state in his question that he's not interested in stirring up controversy. So for for just you know to be fair to Steve, uh, that oh is not, I, yes, I not, don't think he is at all. He's he's just these are honest questions that he's wrestling with, I think, and and I think we all ought to be at some level wrestling with these questions. But I do think, Doctor Pipe, I think your answer was very fair and balanced. And if 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 you didn't if if the listeners didn't hear anything else, hear this: it's the gospel, guys. That's right. It's the gospel. It's that simple and that difficult. That's it. So, um, but anyway, I think it was well, the question was well asked, um, respectfully, humbly. And very the thoughtful question. Appreciate very, it very, very much. Balanced as well. Thank you. Well, we are out of time, as Dr. Piper has indicated. So let me just quickly um, bring everybody up to speed as to what's coming up on the program. And um, just a programming note, um, I, I've received some um emails from listeners about why it takes so long for the faith and practice program to come out after it's live and then a month later that live version comes out well there's a number of reasons for that and i'm still rethinking this I, even at this second um one uh, there's other programs that have been already recorded that were even preceded that one so they need to get out there eventually and i don't want to make them wait three or four months either and so i've tried to stagger the faith and practices each month one month behind um but i'm think in wisdom that may be too long. So I'm going to start pushing the faith and practice ones out probably within two weeks of their actual live recording uh, time. So that'll be changed on the website. So and, and the new schedule does reflect uh, that change. So next week on the program, um, um, we are going to uh, sit down and talk with Ken Golden. He has um, written a book, Presbytopia. It's a great book to introduce people to the Reformed faith and Presbyterianism. And if you want to know what that word means, you'll have to listen to the program. The week after that, David Randall will be on to talk about um, a book that he had he has written, uh, A Sad Departure. It's about the, the, the Church of Scotland and 
um, all the issues that are centered around that. So those are two items that are coming up um, on the program. If you want to know what the full list looks like, you can go to the website, Confessing Our Hope. Dot com. If you are interested in the work of Greenville Seminary, you can go to our website, gpts.edu. Um, we are always interested in your prayerful and financial support uh, of the seminary to train men for the ministry to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So until next time, when we sit down with Ken Golden, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.